This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. As an intelligence-driven and threat-focused national security organization with both intelligence and law enforcement responsibility, the mission of the FBI is to protect and defend the U.S. against terrorist and foreign intelligence threats to uphold and enforce the criminal laws of this country. The FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, CEGIS, plays an integral role in this effort. CEGIS works to reduce terrorist and criminal activities by maximizing the ability to provide timely and relevant criminal justice information. It is the largest division in the FBI. What are the strategic priorities for the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Systems Division? How is the FBI's CEGIS division fostering information sharing across the law enforcement enterprise? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Stephen Morris. Assistant Director of the Criminal Justice Information Systems Division, CEGIS, within the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Chris Trainer. So, Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks. Glad to be here, Mike. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Steve, I'd like to kick off our conversation with some context. Would you provide us with a brief overview of the history and mission of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division? Sure, absolutely. So, um... CEGIS Division, we have a, a long history. We're actually in our numbering chart. We're Division One, believe it or not. The FBI, uh, back in the, I think in the 20s, back when it was the Bureau of Investigation, Congress actually passed a law that, that consolidated at that particular time. There were several fingerprint repositories that existed throughout the country, and Congress passed a law to consolidate those. And and that really gave birth to the identification division of the F, or what was then the Bureau of Investigation, later became the FBI. So it goes back to the 20s, the creation of our division. So we're a long tenure division, uh, but our mission has evolved like anything else in the world evolves over the decades. So we were the identification division for many, many decades, uh, doing fingerprints. That was our bread and butter, so to speak. And then back in the, the 90s, the early 90s, there was a, at least a conscious effort to, to move some of our bigger – CEGIS occupied or the identification division occupied a lot of real estate in the federal building, in the J. Edgar Hoover building in D.C. And so that when there was a need for more space in there, they were looking for components of the FBI to move out of the, the Hoover building. And one of those was uh, the identification division because we consumed a lot of space with file cabinets full of fingerprint cards. So to make a long story short, that's what gave birth to the idea or the thought of moving the identification division out 
Senator Byrd at that time from West Virginia, uh, obviously astutely raised his hand, offered up a dedicated, uh, strong workforce in West Virginia and said, we can do it cheaper, better, faster uh, in West Virginia. And so we ended up, uh, the, the Bureau actually bought about 985 acres uh, out in West Virginia. And in a fairly rapid time, uh, relocated what was then the identification division uh, out to West Virginia. And with that move, they also decided to incorporate or throw in some other programs that was was going on at the time in, in the Hoover building. One was uh, we were just getting into, we were just starting into this unclassified thing called the Internet. The Bureau was uh, getting into that. We had in its infancy, it used to be called Law Enforcement Online. Uh, and so we, they took that program. Uh, another program you probably heard a little bit about here lately is our Uniform Crime Reporting Program, our UCR as we refer to it. Uh, that program was also blended in with the Identification Division, and that's when, uh, and there were a couple of other things, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some of those, but they consolidated those programs and relocated them all in one batch out to West Virginia, and, that, and they renamed it the Criminal Justice Information Services Division because it, then it became more than just an identification division. So that was really the kind of the history of how sieges came to be and, more importantly, how we ended up in West Virginia. Interesting. So, you know, again, for more context, uh, I was wondering if you could give us a sense operationally how the FBI is organized, the scale of operation. And maybe if that's too general, what about your division? What's your what's your budget? How many folks do you have reporting to you? Things like that. Yeah. So um, I probably would stick more to what CGIS is in, in terms of because obviously I know that. Obviously, the FBI is a large organization. We're made up of uh, a number of branches, I think four or five different branches. The CGIS division is one of three divisions located within the FBI's science and technology branch. So we, our sister divisions within our STB branch or science and technology branch, our sister divisions are our laboratory division and our operational technologies division. Both of those are located down at Quantico, as you know. So, uh, But as far as CGIS, uh, we're, like I said earlier, we're the, the oldest division, but we're also the largest division. I have a little over 2,400, almost 2,500 full-time employees that uh, work at Sieges. Then you throw in about four or 500 contractors that work on site there, uh, as well as another four or 500 that support our operations there in and out uh, on and off campus. So on any given, any given time, you know, or any given week, you know, we've got 3,000 people traversing through there. Uh, and we're a 24-7, 365-day-a-year operation. We never close. Our budget runs about $400 million as far as our discretionary, what we call our discretionary funding. We pump a lot of taxpayer dollars into West Virginia. So as you might imagine, we are uh, great partners in the community there in north central West Virginia. We're located just about 25, 26 miles south of Morgantown where the West Virginia University is located. So we have a great partnership with the with WVU and the other schools in the area. But again, uh, CGIS is uh, we're the oldest the largest as far as personnel-wise. The funny thing is, is we, of all the divisions in the FBI, we only have about 25, 26 agents, FBI agents assigned there. I'm obviously one of those. As the assistant director, we fondly refer to ourselves, and you can appreciate this, Chris, we refer to ourselves as one percenters. Uh, so uh, there's a handful of us there, but it's a great relationship that we have with all the staff that are there. I mean, we have a lot of career 
uh, IT folks, information technology folks that run our data centers and do things like that. And it really is a perfect marriage because we provide that operational insight to what is going on in the world in terms of investigations and national security stuff. So uh, it's been a great, great relationship. Let's talk a little bit more about your specific role as assistant director of CEGIS. What are your duties and responsibilities that you uh, carry out? Well, obviously, uh, you know, our mission at CEGIS from a from a general standpoint is, you know, our mission is to is to provide our national security, our law enforcement, our intelligence community partners, that's local, state, federal, tribal partners, uh, is to provide them criminal justice information and systems that they need to not only protect the country but also preserve, you know, our civil liberties within the U.S. And that's our, our overarching mission, so to speak, uh, and to do that on a 24-7 uh, basis, 365 days a year. Really, the division is broken up into two branches, if you will. We have the IT side or the information technology side. That's the, the branch that, that does what we consider our kind of our production work there. The, the, they manage the data centers, all our information technology that is the backbone for a lot of the services and the, 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 the things we provide to the 18,000 local law enforcement or state and local law enforcement that use our services, as well as the FBI. So we have the IT side of it, that's the kind of the information services side of it. And they also manage and maintain other large, um, so we have our next generation identification system, that is, it replaced our, the old APHIS or the automated fingerprint identification system. They manage that and keep that running 24-7. We have our National Crime Information Center, NCIC. That's the system that basically law enforcement uses and uh, to check to see if people are wanted. There's persons and people in there. There's 20-some-odd files on there from, from everything from stolen, par- stolen property to wanted fugitives. They maintain that system 24-7. And then there's a number of other systems that they, they maintain on the information side. And then we have kind of the... Uh, what I call the operational branch. And my job as assistant director is to not only make sure that we're doing that, but also to provide that high-level overview to make sure that not only are we providing those services, but we're also doing it uh, in collaboration with each other Mm -hmm. to make sure we're not duplicating efforts and make sure we're not missing something. And also, too, is uh, one of my primary roles is is to liaison with the 18,000 law enforcement agencies that that we support every single day. And I do that with, we have an advisory policy board, which is a, a formal board made up of local chiefs, sheriffs, uh, police executives, and other law enforcement organizations. There's about 35 of them that form a board that meets twice a year. Uh, there's a whole process that supports that. I'm on that board. Uh, I'm also on what they call the Compact Council, which is a similar forum or board that also helps us manage our the the civil or the non-law enforcement use of the data that we have at CEGIS. And that's for people that are submitting background checks for jobs and employment and positions of trust. We process those. So there's a whole board that helps us manage that. Overall, we, we operate off of what we call a shared management process. And that is essentially we have hundreds of millions of records uh, at CEGIS that sit in a, a, a number of databases. But that data and those records, by and large, do not belong to the FBI or the federal government, for that matter. They belong to local, state, 
police, sheriffs, and uh, government agencies throughout the country. They trust us with that data. They have for decades now. And our job is to make sure that we're managing it and making it accessible to them on a 24-hour basis. In order to do that, they, we meet and we work very closely with them uh, to make changes and to do the things that they want us to do so that we can share that data nationally and in some cases internationally. Mm-hmm. So I know that's a long answer to what do I do as an AD, but if you might imagine trying to manage all those and no, make sure great. we're doing it all. It's a great segue into, uh, you know, given the breadth, depth, and importance of the role your organization plays, what are your, say, I don't know, top three management challenges or top three challenges that you face and more importantly, have you, have you sought to address those challenges? Part of our mission is not only making sure that we uh, manage these millions of records and their criminal history records and you know, law enforcement reports and the different things that, that populate these systems that we use and make sure that folks have access to that need to. Um, we have to strike a balance with privacy in everything we do. Uh, there is absolutely nothing that we at CGIS nor the FBI uh, can do to ever make up for violating someone's privacy. So privacy drives every decision we make. Technology is another challenge. Uh, We are a technology-reliant division. I mean, we're only as good as the technology that we're able to to deploy and leverage. Uh, Sometimes that can be a challenge because within the federal government, as you might imagine, we operate within a budget and oversight and different things like that. And just because technology exists, that private citizens use on a daily basis, they may not, it may not be something that is appropriate or practical for the FBI to use, either from a cost-effectiveness standpoint or, or just other reasons. So part of that challenge for me is making sure that we're not doing something that is duplicative or wasteful, and we're doing something that may already exist, or vice versa, help other agencies that are doing something that we may already have available to them. That's part of my responsibility, I feel, to make sure that are we leveraging each other's assets and resources in a responsible way. So in other words, if there's somebody's out trying to build a widget, if I already have that widget, I've been using it for a long time, then I should be sharing that widget. Or I should be looking to them to say, how did you make your widget better than mine? Because that's what we need to do. So that's one of the things that I think I have an obligation as not just the assistant director, but also as a steward of taxpayer dollars. Clearly, there are a lot of Known challenges at CEGIS, um, but I'm curious a little bit about the unknown challenges, those things that kind of pop up as emergencies of the day. Um, what has surprised you the most about leading your organization? You know, I, I think that uh, probably in a general sense, uh, it's just the sheer size of our division. In my, I've, I've been in the FBI 20, a little over 27 years now, and I've run small offices and small squads and units, and most recently before uh, before I reported as the assistant director to CGIS, I was the special agent in charge of our office, our field office in Houston. So as you logically, as you move up through your management career and your assignments get a little more, com- you know, a little bigger and larger and um, sometimes more complex, uh, there's that gradual progression. But even from moving from a relatively large office, field office operation in Houston, Walking into a division, and, and I've been assigned at CGIS before in previous years, so I had some idea of their mission and their size and scope. But until you're that guy, until, you, until you're the guy sitting in the, the bird seat there and you're responsible for, for managing that division, you really can't appreciate the, the magnitude of trying to manage 3,000 people on a 24-7 basis 
uh, because then you get into not just managing the operations and, and a workforce of that large, but also uh, I feel responsible for them. I, re- I feel responsible for their their happiness, their job gratification, literally their feeding and watering. You know, it's a good entree into um, sort of given your background, your last detour, your last tour was in Houston. Now it's with Sieges. Given your career path, what makes it an effective leader? And perhaps you can share with us some of the characteristics of effective leader and who's influenced your leadership style. Uh, first and foremost, I would have to say my family sure. at first, um, going back to how I was raised, right? And then, of course, as uh, you have children and you have your family, that, you know, that they keep me grounded. They remind me of really who I am as a person, first and foremost. So I think that affects me every single day. And then, of course, when I get into my get in the office and get into my career, I have uh, there are managers I've worked for in the past that that I remember fondly. Uh, some of them I'm still still dear friends with. I spent several years down on the southwest border in El Paso back in the '90s, and uh, I had a boss down there who taught me as a young a young agent and a, a new supervisor or soon to be supervisor. You know, would teach me things about you know about just how to make, you know, how to approach meetings and different things like that. So little things like that you remember. Obviously, I had a squad mate of mine that uh, was a dear friend. Uh, and one of the things I've learned is you never want to forget where you came from. You really uh, always want to keep grounded uh, in that and know who you are as a person because uh, that affects how you treat other people. So I think that's highly, uh, I think that's very important to me. You know, I think as a, as a manager, as an executive, you've got to constantly be able to maintain that flexibility and constantly be innovative and forward thinking. But don't forget, again, where you came from because there are lessons learned there. You got to kind of walk that tightrope because I think uh, there are a lot of lessons learned from the past, but at the same time, we got to constantly be moving forward sometimes at the speed of light. So I think this is an important balancing act. What are the strategic priorities for the FBI's Sieges Division? We will ask its assistant director, Steve Morris, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Steve Morris, Assistant Director of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, or CEGIS. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Chris Trainer. Uh, Steve, before we delve into specifics, I'd like to get a better understanding of your strategic vision and top priorities for CEGIS. What are they? Could you outline them for us? Sure. So, um, obviously, I talked about our, our mission mm-hmm. uh, as a division, so in our efforts to help our state and local and federal partners and tribal partners safeguard our nation, we also strive to provide emerging capabilities to those partners to help them do that. And really, it's about an effort to help them not only be able to do their job, but help them connect and to identify and to know uh, who they're dealing with and what they're dealing with, whether that be an individual 
or that be threats or emerging threats and those sort of things. So that would kind of be, that's our vision. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that, obviously, it's kind of woven through that vision is in providing that power to connect and identify and know that's being able to provide the ability to connect from a tech, you know, from a technology technology standpoint to be the ability to get access for our partners that need the information we have and vice versa for us to be able to get the information. So that ability to connect, whether that's whether they're trying to identify a, an individual in our NGI database or, or in our NCIC database or even crime statistics to know what kind of crimes are happening in their area. So that ability to share that information is important. That's a great way to, to jump into our next question, which is about the Uniform Crime Reporting System. And uh, it's currently undergoing a re- redevelopment. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the FBI is planning to do to increase uh, the quality of the data that's available for the Uniform Crime Reporting System? When we talk about Uniform Crime Reporting or UCR within the FBI, really what that is, it's an umbrella program that really captures four or five different collection programs, if you will. You have what we call Crime in the United States. That's that publication that used to come out in hard copy. It was about two inches thick. It got published every year. It always comes out at the end of the year, but it always frustrated people because it was always for the year before that stat. So, but that was just the nature of that process because uh, collecting that data and getting it in from state and local agencies, it, they're very prescribed parameters for how they report it and what they report. So there was a lot of quality. Review. So that, that really uh, manual process, it just, it's uh, archaic to say the least. So we actually started a few years ago trying to modernize that effort. It started really with focusing on the technology for our Uniform Crime Reporting Program. Uh, it really gets to the who, what, when, where, and why of crime versus just numbers. Because what populated that crime in the U.S. most oftentimes was uh, agencies would just report the number of homicides you had or the number of aggravated assaults or arsons. And it was about 10 categories or maybe a little more than that. I, I don't know. I can't remember the exact number, but it was just a, a tick mark collection program. So it was great. 60, 70 years ago when there was when technology didn't exist and there wasn't this expectation or reality that you could collect that data. So NIBRS came into play and uh, pretty much just, they started talking about it in, in the 80s, but it really came into play in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. So you had UCR and the crime in the U.S. and summary reporting. You had NIBR, or you have NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting. But also, too, over the years, we've the UCR program has had the law enforcement officers killed in an assaulted publication, and Chris, you've probably seen that, and uh, uh, and that's information that has been collected and provided by state and local agencies on just what it says on officers that have been assaulted or killed in the line of duty, and that collection began decades ago, and really as in an effort to help understand why these things were happening in terms of so it could inform training decisions and, and different tactics and things like that. So that's been in place for a while. And, you know, and can we make it more efficient from a technology standpoint so that it doesn't make it even more burdensome for an agency? So as a result of that, we've come up with a, uh, we call it a five-pronged approach, quite frankly, uh, that we're coming at this from. And first and foremost, is our, our plan is to retire or do away with that summary reporting system that's just numbers because it doesn't really tell you anything. 
about the crimes other than how many you had, if people provide that. So our goal is to, within the next five years, retire that summary reporting. Um, we hope to get there sooner than that with the consensus that we've developed through our APB and different things. Uh, five years is the number that we've kind of at least set our target date for. So retiring that summary reporting in favor of everybody going to the NIBRS collection because everybody realizes that's where the rich data sits, is in that granular uh, data that NIBRS allows you to collect. So um, retiring legacy and collecting NIBRS data is one of those, the first prong. Second prong is expanding the data that we do collect. And our goal is to begin collecting that data sometime in hopefully in the summer of 2017, because again, it requires an IT infrastructure. It requires a process that you can do it nationally. So that's a big part of that effort. The third prong of that effort is the FBI also, making sure that we're reporting crime statistics, uh, just like we're asking our local state. I'm a huge believer in don't ask someone to do something that you're not willing or already doing. And that's a, it's a big deal for me. So uh, not to mention that uh, law requires federal agents you should do it. So uh, it's, uh, if no other reason, you do it for that reason. So we have an effort underway now to make sure that we are putting the processes in place that uh, allow us to report that. And then fourth step is once we get our house in order, then we hope to then work, work with our sister agencies, particularly outside the Department of Justice. And then the last prong of that effort is this is all great to collect this data and to have all these different sets. But again, it doesn't do us any good to collect that data and then report it a year after the fact. It needs to be timely. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be accessible by the public. Steve, you mentioned the retirement, the anticipated retirement of the summary reporting system and the replacement of that system with NIBRS. And I'm just curious, could you tell us what the adoption rate uh, currently is for the use of NIBRS information, and, and what's the roadmap to get to 100%? So as I mentioned earlier, NIBRS was actually a concept that uh, was born out of the realization back in the 80s that, okay, you know, this summary reporting, you know, it's been working for the last, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, and it's, and it's, it's informing, you know, law enforcement, but it really is not answering the real questions that we are finding. And that, so that conversation started back in the 80s. But it's been a slow process to get agencies on board with NIBRS reporting. Uh, and quite frankly, if some agencies, if they were already submitting summary data, then they were already checking the box. Uh, we provide data. And, you know, and again, with the competing resources, they, they needed to use their assets and their resources for other things. This effort past 30 years to encourage folks to adopt NIBRS has been a slow process. Right now, we I would say if you had to look at the country uh, overall of the 18,000, give or take, agencies that are out there that could submit that kind of data, roughly about a third, about 30 percent of those agencies are submitting NIBRS data. And that represents you know a little over 6,000 agencies out there that, that we are getting NIBRS data from. So obviously, our goal is to get as many of those or more agencies submitting NIBRS. So we work very closely with the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is part of the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, they have an, uh, a program that they've been working for the past couple of years. We've been working with them on, but particularly within the last year, is the National Crime Statistics Exchange. And that's an effort 
uh, where BJS is identified roughly 400 or so larger uh, law enforcement agencies and organizations in parts of the country that maybe uh, don't have a lot of coverage from a statistic standpoint. They've identified about 400 of those that they believe if they can get those agencies to begin submitting uh, NIBRS data, that that would provide a statistically sound representation of the nation in terms of coverage. Uh, so we were working hand in glove with BJS, Bill Sable and his folks over there to help them not only bring those agencies on board quicker, but also to, to expand that beyond those agencies and really, quite frankly, is to help agencies that are still doing summary reporting, helping them migrate over to NIBRS. So it's a partnership with BJS, uh, a lot of outreach through our APB and our Compact Council partners and different things. And again, it's uh, talking about it a lot uh, in every form that I get, every form the director gets. Uh, to stress the importance of it. Steve, you mentioned the National Crime Information Center database. What are you folks doing to improve it and create the next generation? I believe it's referred to as N3G. Can you tell us about some of the improvements in that area? Uh, as part of my effort or as part of my job as assistant director is what's the next on the horizon, trying to, again, project ourselves out to say what is technology going to be like in the next few years? What can we leverage? Uh, we made a decision a couple of years ago that it's time to overhaul the NCIC, as you mentioned, Mike. Uh, we refer to it as Next Generation NCIC, or N3G is kind of the acronym that you, you may hear some folks referring to. Um, but that is going to be a huge lift uh, for the FBI, for the CGIS division, because that system is not only is it such a crucial system, and it's one of our primary systems that, that not only do we use as an organization, but all, all of our partner agencies use them. It is literally the lifeline for law enforcement on the streets. Uh, right now, where we are at in the process is we're early in the process in terms of, uh, first of all, let's find out what our users need and want. We have some ideas from the years of experience in managing the system from an IT hardware architecture thing. We kind of know how to do that, but more importantly, what do the users need? So we just recently completed a probably one of the largest user uh, studies or user canvases that we've ever done at CGIS, and we sent teams out to every state in the country, uh, even some of our international partners, just to see what they're doing in some cases. And we basically went out just on a fact-finding mission. Sit down, talk to them, uh, ask them, you know, how do they use the system? What would they want the system to do? And we've gathered that information. We have input from over 5,500 users of the system. And we're in the process now of kind of distilling that down into common themes that we will then use that will eventually inform or lead to what we refer to as, you know, requirements that will end up building what we believe is the concept of operations for what N3G will be. Uh, so we're in the process now of just kind of distilling those down. We'll start uh, presenting those to our advisory policy board members and different folks to not only vet those, but also to kind of get it to a manageable number so that we can then start putting it into a, a concept of operations. Some of the key features or some of the key things that have come out from that user study is obviously mobility, making it mobile for police officers so they can access the system on their smartphones and different things and other capabilities. Obviously, you have other things like just a better search 
uh, capability in terms of you know being able to search one thing and getting a comprehensive search of all the different files. Uh, other things that would come with technology that the the way images are projected and the way files are projected, kind of what we call the GUI stuff, the, the user interface stuff, different things like that. So those are just some of the things that have kind of popped out. It seemed to be a consensus across the people want a system that they can use as a law enforcement or an investigator or an analyst or whoever that looks and kind of feels like the stuff they use at home, whether it's Google or Facebook or, or, or Instagram or whatever. They kind of they use that every single day. Their kids use it. Uh, so it shouldn't be a quantum leap or a significant change for that. So that's what we're trying to, trying to incorporate into that. But uh, we're in the early stages. What is the mission of the FBI's Biometric Technology Center? We will ask FBI Assistant Director Steve Morris when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How is the Data Act being implemented? What are the requirements of the Data Act? What are some of the key challenges in implementing the Data Act? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Christina Ho, Deputy Assistant Secretary Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency, U.S. Department of the Treasury. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Steve Morris, Assistant Director of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, or CEGIS. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Chris Trainer. Steve, what is the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS? What is the time frame for having the NICS operation running around the clock seven days a week, and how many delayed denials will be prevented by the new schedule? The FBI's role in supporting that mission is is to conduct background checks on potential buyers that are trying to purchase a firearm. Um, in a nutshell, the way it works, Mike, is an individual walks into a gun store, fills out a, an ATF form of 4473, answers a few questions on there, uh, provides some biographic data, name, date of birth, different things. That firearms dealer or that FFL will then pick up the phone. They call in. The call goes into a call center. The call center uh, when they take that call, they, the FFL provides that bio, name and biographic data to the the uh, individual on the phone at the call center. Basically, what they're doing is they're searching three databases. They're searching NCIC, see if this person's wanted, to see if they uh, there's any other record in the NCIC that might trigger one of the prohibitors. And I think there are about 10 federal prohibitors right. that would prohibit an individual from being able to possess a firearm. So they'll run NCIC. They'll run what we call I, which is an interstate identification index. And that's where our criminal histories reside. Those are fingerprint-based criminal histories. So every so when a person gets arrested and their mugshots and fingerprints are taken, that information populates the I. So that's and that's really the bread and butter, because that's where you find folks you know, for the different prohibitors. And then I also search what they call the NICS index. And the NICS index is Basically, so if you think about it like this, and, and, and this is one of those things that a lot of folks just don't understand the process, so it's very easy for them to just hear things reported on the news or whatever, and they draw conclusions when they really don't understand the process. So 
The NICS index is really a system. So if a person gets arrested, they have fingerprints and they have a criminal history, that's going to go into III. That's where it needs to be because it's used for other purposes, for other civil background checks and different things like that, not to mention law enforcement conducting investigation. You got NCIC. As I mentioned, that's our, our, our database of uh, person and properties files. So there are other records, however, that could trigger one of the prohibitors from a firearms background check, like mental health records. That's a big, big subject. Well, it doesn't mean you've been arrested, so you, you, your information is not going to be in III. At the same time, uh, it might not be an NCIC because if, if there's no warrant for you, you've never been you know, wanted for anything, you might not be an NCIC. There, so there needs to be another repository. So the NICS index was created as a third repository to put other records in there. It also puts if individuals have been uh, backgrounded before and found to be prohibited, then they'll put those uh, in that NICS index. So it's a quick check. So if it comes back as a positive hit in the NICS index, then you don't have to do a lot of research. So it's a kind of a quick reference. So those three databases are the databases that are checked by that call center when the FFL calls. And so if it comes back and there's no record in any of those uh, databases, uh, the individual is proceeded or they're given a proceed. Uh, the FFL is given a proceed to transfer the firearm. That happens more than 70% of the time. In the roughly 28, 29% of the time, when there's a hit to one of those databases, then somebody within the FBI has got to look at that and see if that hit is actually who it is, who it could be. So that those calls then get transferred to the FBI. That's where you've been hearing a lot of reporting here recently about the staffing, the additional staff for the FBI to, to process the volumes. Because when we started this process back in the late 90s, at that particular time, we had roughly 500 folks to support that process. And that's just not 500 folks answering phones. That's people processing appeals because there's a part of the legislation is processes to allow an individual to appeal a denial. So there's a lot of other processes that kind of wrap around the, the core business of NICS. So in the late 90s, when there were about 500 people doing that, we processed roughly about 4 million transactions. Well, Fast forward to today, and last year we did over 8.3 million transactions. But our staff roughly remained pretty, pretty steady or pretty constant. So from just a pure mathematical standpoint, the volume has exceeded our capability to continue to handle. So, And then you throw in other challenges, like we mentioned earlier about dispositions, records not being in there or incomplete records being in there, then that requires a lot of research. And when you start getting on the phone, literally calling other government agencies to get this information, it can be time consuming. And we have to get all this done from the time that FFL calls for the background check, three business days, a decision has to be made. And that's an extremely important decision. So that's in a nutshell how the process works. Can you talk a little bit about the plans to expand the staff in order to, to conduct the next checks? Yeah. So obviously our big plan is to, like I mentioned earlier, just from a mathematical standpoint, you know, the volume's increasing, our staffing is flatlined. So we obviously have got to increase our staff to keep up. But also, I probably should have mentioned too, as we're focusing on the staffing in our processes to try to build some efficiencies there, one of the things that we also are doing is we are replacing the original IT infrastructure that was used to do those searches of those databases and how that information is shared among those databases. 
And for the past couple of years, we've been involved in a development project to replace that legacy hardware and that legacy process, and we refer to it as new NICs. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to roll out the first phase of that system sometime in the fall of this year. Our goal there, earlier to your point, Mike, is to uh, right now the system, uh, as, it, as it currently is designed and as it currently runs now, it goes off. We take it offline sometime after midnight or whatever, because part of the the law requires us to purge every record out of it every single day. So transactions that come through for folks that are uh, exercising their Second Amendment right to purchase a weapon or a firearm, uh, that their information has to be purged every night. So it, we take the system offline every night, we purge it, and then we do so we put our patches and different things we have to do. And it, so it's offline for anywhere from five to seven hours every night. Part of our goal is, is, is as part of the IT uh, development is to create a system where those purges and those changes occur uh, while the system continues to run. So we don't have to go offline because one of the things that we are emphasizing with our NICS process is leveraging what we call e-check is our online uh, background check process. And we've seen a significant increase in the number of FFLs that are using e-check versus picking up the phone, calling in, and standing there and talking to an operator and talking to an examiner. They can go online, submit the information online, and then go back, go about doing their other business. We have folks that process those. They pull it off, off on, they process it, they send them the results so that it comes back to them in a notification. They don't ever have to talk to anybody. Uh, that's very efficient. So uh, one of the things that we are uh, leveraging is the e-check process. And so in order for that to really work and to really provide some benefit is for the system to be up 24-7 to do that. So that's one of our goals with the new NIC system is to, to leverage that 24-7 capability. I'd like to talk a little bit about the National Data Exchange, which is also known as NDEX. That system provides cross-jurisdictional information sharing platform that's accessible to law enforcement agencies nationwide. Can you tell us what the current participation rate among these agencies is and how the FBI plans to increase the participation in index? Sure, Chris. Um, I think we rolled uh, index out around, I think, I believe in 2008. And, and obviously, uh, for those that it's index is the acronym for National Data Exchange. And really what that represents for us is it's a system that was actually envisioned when, when I was at CGIS in 2005. I actually had the program that was looking at developing this system called Index. And at that time, the concept was, you know, there's a lot of information. It's the proverbial connect the dots conversation that you have, folks. Well, it's it's easy to connect the dots if you know where the dots are. So one of the things that we talked about back then, you know, over 10 years ago was uh, a lot of those dots sit out in the records management systems of the law enforcement agencies that are out engaging the public and doing their law enforcement work. And that's essentially what Index does, is it's it's a it's people, persons, things, uh, and places, and it really taps into incident reports and different things that, that law enforcement agencies populate in their system. So since Index has been around since, and again, we... I think it was uh, the initial capabilities of that was rolled out in 2008. It's been a, it's been a, a work in progress. Obviously, it's one of those things, build it, they will come. Uh, it's been uh, slow going early on, but now up to date, we have over 500, almost half a billion records, 500 million records that are currently uh, either ex- uh, exist within index or accessible through index. Mm-hmm. 
and that's records that are supplied or provided access by over 5,000 agencies out of there. Last year, I believe we had about 30,000 users uh, access um, index um, and did over 4 million searches on it. So it's growing. Probably not growing as fast as I'd like, but uh, <laughs> that's part of our effort is to continue to go out and uh, engage agencies and get that participation going. I want to jump ahead because I think this is a, it's sort of an important effort that you guys uh, launched last summer, and it's the Biometric Technology Center. Could you tell us about its mission, its purpose, what it's set to accomplish? And I understand it is a joint project with DOD, the U.S. Department of Defense. Would you explain to us how the law enforcement and military needs kind of intersect and what the economies of scale that's realized? Within the federal government, you really have, I consider, three primary or principal repositories that have the largest holdings of biometrics. You have, obviously, the FBI's next generation identification. You got Department of Defense's ABIS system, their automated biometrics identification system. Uh, then you also have DHS's, used to be called IDENT, uh, their identification system uh, that houses fingerprints and biometrics on individual foreign nationals and folks that are traveling in and out of the country. So we've been engaged with both of those departments, Department of Homeland Security and Defense, for the last probably 20 years, or at least with Department of Defense for uh, for at least 20 years, and then obviously since the inception of DHS, to make those systems interoperable. And what I mean by that is we don't want to consolidate them because those databases exist under different authorities and for different purposes. And it needs to stay that way. That's that independent mission set that I think is uh, important from the privacy and civil liberty standpoints because we collect and we house the data under different authorities and for different reasons. Department of Defense does it. DHS does it. So having those separate, it's where it should be. But there's also a need to have those systems be able to communicate with one another. The BTC, the Biometrics Technology Center, really what that represents, that is a brick-and-mortar task force. Yeah. We are bringing together agencies that that have an interest, U.S. government agencies that not only have an, an interest but a mission that involves biometrics. We need to bring our folks back under one roof. We need to build space for our folks to be able to do their work. And then also DOD had a need as well. So they partnered. They offered. They, they provided funding. They worked with our, constru- our construction program, uh, project team uh, to build the BTC. We cut the ribbon on that facility. Chris, you were there uh, back in August. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful facility. We started moving folks in there in December of this past year. And... Um, uh, we started what we call the first phase of our move-in, but uh, now that building is operating. But to answer your question, it really, uh, Mike, it really represents uh, a task force environment. And it's nothing, nothing breeds success like having people in the same room under the same roof working together. And so really what that is is us harnessing everything not only that the FBI does, but quite frankly what the U.S. government does in the field of biometrics. And I know, so DOD is going to be there. Department of Homeland Security has expressed an interest in it. And it wouldn't surprise me if other agencies that we work closely with will have other folks located there, there as well. What is the mission of the FBI's Advisory Policy Board? We will ask Steve Morris, Assistant Director of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, or CEGIS, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, 
the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Steve Morris, Assistant Director of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, or CEGIS. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Chris Trainer. Steve, the Advisory Policy Board, or APB, plays an important role in shaping CEGIS policy. Would you tell us more about the makeup of the board and how they assist CEGIS? Absolutely. Uh, first, I can't, uh, I really can't underscore uh, enough how important the um, the advisory policy board or the APB as referred to it, uh, how important that is to our daily, everyday operations at Sieges. It was not something that I was familiar with until I be- became, until I started working at Sieges, and then shortly thereafter, you really see the important role they play, and essentially what the APB is. And uh, the APB, st- it actually started over 20 years ago when, when the FBI um, started developing its... Uh, first APHIS system is the automated fingerprint system. Uh, at that particular time, they grabbed industry leaders, and or not industry leaders as much as practitioners, law enforcement agencies that were looking to, to build or had built, and they brought these folks together to kind of help the Bureau design and build and develop, and they did it. And, uh, and that proved very successful to the point where um, uh, they leveraged that success uh, when they were started developing, when the FBI started developing and uh, deploying NCIC, the first generation of NCIC, they did the same thing to the point where that proved uh, incredibly successful in being able to deliver nationally scoped systems to support these agencies to the point where Director Free, I believe it was, basically made the APB or uh, created the APB uh, as an, uh, an official federal advisory committee under the uh, FACA regulations, regulations. And so last year, actually it's 2014, uh, the APB celebrated its 20th anniversary. So it's 20 years we've been doing this. And essentially what the APB is, is it is a, uh, it's a board of 35 individuals that hold seats on the official board. Those folks are elected and appointed to that board uh, by their constituents. And when I say constituents, so, so I have to back up a little bit to explain how it feeds up to the board. So the board meets every six months, twice a year. But the topics or the issues that they meet to discuss and vote on are promulgated through a grassroots effort. In other words, there are five working groups that make up the foundation of the APB. And those five working groups are regional you know, uh, and I don't know exactly, you know, north, south, south central, uh, 
uh, West, uh, and then there's a federal working group. And those working groups are uh, there. could be anywhere from, then I forget the exact number, but there are dozens of members on those working groups. And there's local, there's every state has a, a state representative on it. Every, uh, they have a local representative on it. And then there's, uh, in some areas, there's other designees on those working groups. So those working groups, they hear or they either, if a so if a police an agency has an issue with a system or an idea that they want uh, that they think would be helpful for law enforcement, then they form what they call a topic paper, and it kind of gets reviewed by all those working groups. And uh, in the essence of time, it basically those working groups formulate themselves up to uh, issues that are reviewed and voted on by the board. Those what they vote on in terms of. And all the working groups hear the same topics and same issues, and they make their recommendations. And those get distilled down to recommendations that go to the board. They vote on that board, that 35-member board. And those folks that sit on the board, some of those are members of those working groups that are elected by their working group that we want, you know, Chris to be our representative on the board. And then there are other organization leaders uh, from different sectors of the criminal justice community, corrections and parole and different things, that our director appoints individuals too. So those get those topics get voted on and those result in recommendations that then go to our director. And essentially when our director's reading these recommendations, these are recommendations that the APB representatives of the law enforcement community, national security community at large have said, "Hey, FBI director, this is what we would like the FBI to do with our information or we'd like we don't want to do with our information in terms of there are agencies that want access to it. They may not feel comfortable and don't want to grant that access. So he then takes their recommendations and he either uh, approves them or not. A majority of the time, if not most every time, uh, after considerable deliberation, uh, they're approved and implemented and put into practice. So that's an extremely important thing to understand when, when folks look at the CGIS division and how we operate, is it's not a division that uh, makes decisions in a vacuum. It's probably our, within the FBI, it's our probably our most outward-facing division. We probably work closer on a day-to-day basis uh, with our local state agencies than we do with our own in some cases. Um, and that's sometimes a challenge for me, uh, but it's a very important mission that we play. And we could not make the decisions we make, nor should we make the decisions we make, without that buy-in and that consensus of that APB. So a lot of folks don't understand that uh, in terms of how that drives the decisions that are made at sieges, but there's very few decisions made at sieges that we don't have the support of our local, state, federal, tribal agencies, and they're part of that deliberative process. Uh, And that's part of what we call our shared management process. And for folks that aren't familiar with sieges, even within our own organization, there are a lot of people that understand that. Folks that do become aware of it and understand it, realize the significance of it. And it's really, uh, the visibility of the APB has really increased in the last few years, particularly here recently with the discussion about crime statistics. Mm -hmm. Because our director has been before our APB twice, Director Comey has been before them twice uh, since he's uh, been director, uh, urging uh, for their support and cooperation and basically telling his story why he thinks it's important. Mm -hmm. So it's a great check and balance there. Uh, but it's not a rubber stamp. Uh, and if the APB doesn't want something to happen or they don't believe their information should be used for a certain purpose, 
we have to respect that whether we agree with it or not. So, Steve, what advice would you give someone who is possibly thinking about a career in public service or law enforcement? Well, obviously, I can share from my own experience. Uh, you'll hear a lot of folks uh, in federal service say, um, and in particularly with the FBI, uh, you're not going to get rich, but you're never going to get bored. <laughs> and uh, I say that uh, every single day. I, I oftentimes have to sit back and think about how quickly 27 years went by. I mentioned it earlier about, you know, don't forget where you came from, but uh, and that is so true. The, the time has flown by, and, and as far as an individual seeking a career in, in, um, in federal service, um, uh, I have to say the FBI has been one of the most gratifying careers that I can imagine ever having. It really is, even you know, as a young college kid going into the FBI, it really is the only career I've ever had. I tell folks all the time I've uh, I've had uh, I've had probably a dozen jobs in my life, but I've only had one career, and that's the beauty of the FBI. Uh, there's so many opportunities to do so many things. I started out in the FBI as a mail clerk, sorting mail and answering phones and emptying trash, working nights and weekends while I put my way through college. Uh, and here I am, 27 years later, I find myself in this the privilege of being the assistant director at Sejus. Uh, so it has been, within the FBI, there is no no boring days. You go to work every single day knowing you're going to walk into something different. I'm sure you could, sh- you could share the same stories, Chris, with, uh, having been with ATF. Uh, everything's a new adventure. You never get bored. Uh, and more importantly, uh, yeah, everybody likes to make a little bit of money. But you make a good living of it, but you're doing, uh, you're doing good work. And you, you, the sense of gratification and the sense of purpose is uh, is really fulfilling, and uh, so I would encourage it, uh, anyone that that wants that balance in their life, to, they should really give it a, a hard look. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us today. I, I want to thank you for your time, but more importantly, Chris and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you, Mike. I thank you, and I thank you, Chris. You've been there too, so I thank you both. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Steve Morris, Assistant Director of the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division, or CJIS. My co-host from IBM has been Chris Trainer. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How is the Data Act being implemented? What are the requirements of the Data Act? What are some of the key challenges in implementing the Data Act? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Christina Ho, Deputy Assistant Secretary Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency, U.S. Department of the Treasury. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 AM.